Good morning. You're just in time. Welcome to the St. Gabriel Cafe, your sacred space to sip on today's local blend of faithful encouragement. Let's start our day together. Good morning. Glad you made it. Pull up a chair. I'm Dave Orsborn. And I'm Amanda Miller. And we're so excited to have you with us in the St. Gabriel Cafe, our live and local morning show. Cam Clutters, our barista, and today we're going to spend the entire hour here in the cafe getting to know our new friend, Father Jacques Kick, pastor of Our Lady of Victory Parish here in Columbus and a priest in the Maronite Rite. So, good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Can you start us with a prayer? In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for another day. We thank you for your goodness, for your graces, and we even thank you for those little sufferings that you give us in the form of a cross that draw us closer to you. We ask to carry our crosses well, but to also remember that you give us people in our lives to, to help us carry them. We thank you for the community of people you've given us. We thank you for our diocese, and we thank you for all the ways that you speak to us each day. We ask that you open our eyes and our hearts to hear you. And we, we offer all the little tasks and all the people that we meet today to you, to your intercession. We ask to just do everything with great love. We offer ourselves to you as a sacrifice of love. And we, we pray all this through Jesus' name and through the intercession of Mary. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Today the church celebrates St. Wenceslaus who is the patron saint of the Bohemian people. So all of our Bohemian people listeners, St. Wenceslas, this day is for you, uh, of the Czech Republic as well. St. Lawrence Ruiz, a Filipino youth, uh, patron of people working overseas, and altar servers. Mm. So wow. I have to get to know him a little bit better. Yeah. I don't know too much about him. How you doing, Amanda? Uh, pretty well. How you doing, Dave? I'm awesome. I have been really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm excited. Do you want to talk a little scripture? Sure. Yeah. What stood out to you? What... I think a different one than yours. <laughs> Seems typical. <laughs> right. Chocolate milk, strawberry milk, pumpkin spice, not pumpkin spice. Um, the response oral, uh, mm. today, uh, the Lord takes delight in his people from Psalm 149. Oh. The Lord takes delight in his people. I had my men's group last night and I'm the, I'm the rookie to the group. So uh, just uh, eight or so guys sitting around talking about Jesus and it's such a blessing. And I know that the Lord takes delight mm. in all of these guys and through his delight, we delight in each other. And, and it's really just that simple, just hanging out together, um, just having fellowship and fraternity. It's such a blessing. That is a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mind went a very different path this morning. <laughs> I, Do share. I was, I was reading the first reading, and what stood out to me was, um, you know, it talks about, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. <laughs> you have sowed much, but have brought in little. 
You have eaten but have not been satisfied. You have drunk but not been exhilarated. You have clothed yourself but not been warmed. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think it's good to be admonished every once in a while. Mm. It's good to remember like, okay, Lord, I gotta, I gotta get my act together or there are ways that I, I could do better. Um, of course, not in a demeaning kind of self-deprecating kind of way. You know, there's always, there's always hope. There's always grace. There's always mercy. Um, but it's good to be reminded every once in a while that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, get on the ball. That's right. Yeah. We're called to be saints, not comfortable. I had a, you said the word admonished, and yeah. I had a roommate once who really uh, enjoyed calling all of the rest of us on to holiness. And in the Franciscan world, when, when St. Francis and his brothers would uh, admonish one another, often they would go roll in like ashes or throw ashes on one another. Well, we didn't have ashes often, but we did have this big bag of flour. Oh. And so anytime <laughs> this particular roommate of mine would admonish one of us for forgetting to do our chores or not making our bed or leaving our room messy or, you know, just little things like that, he would grab a handful of flour and throw it at our head. Um, and so you always knew, like, who got admonished that <laughs> when he would walk in the door and somebody would just be, like, covered in flour on all over their hair and stuff like that, so... That's what that made me think of. I love that. It was a good time in my life. I got really disciplined. You there know? you go. <laughs> we need more friends to call us on. <laughs> now, was there ever any payback? I, I go right to revenge. Oh, no. We would admonish him, too. And okay. I, I had another roommate in particular who picked up on the flower thing and, and would very specifically throw flower at, at the first mm-hmm. roommate. So, so if you see a bag of flower tomorrow morning... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and tomorrow is National Coffee Day. I'm so excited. Yes. This perfect yes. for the cafe. Yeah, so we're going to have special coffee drinks. Okay. Maybe some Lebanese coffee. Ooh. Hmm? It's a good time to bring in Father Jacques Kick when we're talking about Lebanese coffee. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Amanda. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, Cam. And good morning to all our listeners. Yeah, it's so good to have you with us. Thank you for hosting me. Um, so you're the pastor of Our Lady of Victory. Yes. Yeah. When uh, when did you step into that role? So July 11. Okay. Was the the date for all the changes around mm-hmm. the Diocese of Columbus. So I have been serving uh, Our Lady of Victory since July 11, but I have also been serving the Maronite Mission in Columbus since September of last year. Okay. Good. We're going to talk a lot about that today, especially. St. Charbel, I need your help on this one, okay? Okay. So, um, you're from Lebanon? Yes, I was born in 1986, grew up in Lebanon, Mm -hmm. pretty calm childhood, Catholic family, Catholic Mm -hmm. school. In in a big city, a smaller town? No, it's uh, in the suburbs of Beirut, so it's a big city. Mm -hmm. But originally, we're from the mountains of Lebanon, but during the war, my family was displaced. Okay. As sadly it ha- often happens in wars. So I was born and I grew up in Beirut all my life, mm-hmm. all my childhood. I have an uncle who's a diocesan priest. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. So uh, uh, in Lebanon, uh, Lebanon is not a secular society. So religion is everywhere. You grow up around religion, around the saints. If you if you want to go out on a trip, you go visit a shrine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's everywhere, saints and churches and faith. Just, it's, culture is so imbued with faith 
everywhere. So we grew up in that kind of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Do you have siblings? I do have a brother. He's five years older than me. Mm-hmm. He's in Lebanon. With okay. My, all my family's still there. Now, you say your uncle's a diocesan priest in the Maronite, right? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, is that what the Latin rite would be to to the U.S.? I mean, are, are, I mean, 99% of the Catholics? Yes. So, it's a long okay. story. Uh, are we, you ready we, for We it? have time. I, I want to hear about... <laughs> okay. Well, because I... you've probably heard this marionite and it's not marionite it's named after saint Marin. correct i knew that a long long time ago before amanda told me this <laughs> okay. morning this morning so. before <laughs> <laughs> it's okay cam told me actually so yes. so now father can tell us saint right. Marin. so to explain all of this to our listeners we have to go back two thousand years ago when christianity first started the apostles after receiving the holy spirit in Pentecost, they went out to evangelize. So they started from Jerusalem. St. Mark went to Egypt, preached in Alexandria, and founded a big church there. Then all the other apostles went in different ways. Ways St. Peter went up from uh, Jerusalem, crossing through Lebanon, Syria, and established a big hub of Christianity in Antioch, it's right between the Syrian and Turkish border. Okay. And uh, actually, the Acts of the Apostles mention that in Antioch, the disciples disciples were first called Christians. So that, that was that big hub of Christianity over there. Then some continued to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and founded another big church in Constantinople. And uh, St. Peter went on to Rome, where he ended his journey and ended his life and founded the Church of Rome, Mm -hmm. where he died and where his successors took after him the leadership of the church. So those were the big hubs of Christianity at the beginning. They were called Seas, S-E-E, the Seas, the big Seas of Christianity. And so the Maronites were part of the See of Antioch. The bishop, who, which was later called, who was later called Patriarch of Antioch, was the chief, the head of the church of all that region. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> this is how it started. Now, to go to St. Marin. St. Marin is a figure of the 4th century. He was born in, in the middle of the 4th century. And and uh, at times where there were a lot of heresies, there was still a lot of uh, idolatry. People mm. were still worshiping idols. I'm glad we got rid of all that. Yeah. We, yeah, we don't have heresies or idols anymore. Right? Yeah, <laughs> at least not as rampant as they used to be. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a, a strong current of ascetism, of monastic life originally started with St. Anthony in in the desert of Egypt in the second century, but it spread throughout the church. People who were consecrating their lives to to just prayer and worship. And St. Marin devised a new form of monastic life. 
He was an innovator. He went up a mountain that was dedicated to the worship of demons, false gods, mm. and dedicated that temple upon that mountain to the worship of the true God. And he pitched a tent outdoors, which he rarely went in, and lived his whole life in the outdoor. Mortifications, prayers, sacrifices, penance, uh, allowing himself to be subjected to the weather changes, the cold, the rain, the snow, the heat, the sun, all of that in penance. So it was a new form of monastic life, living in the outdoors. Uh, and soon enough, he began to have disciples who wanted to follow his ways, who were inspired by the faith of a great man like that who was worshiping God upon that mountain by himself and just spending all his days and nights in prayer and sacrifice for the people. So he started having disciples who wanted to follow his way. Uh, he did not, it is very important to point out that St. Marin did not intend to start a movement in the church or to start a church or an organization. He was just a man who was inspired by God a man who had so much faith and had a vision of to, to dedicate all his energy to the divine. And so his disciples started forming a community around him. And he was, uh, his fame soon spread out because he, uh, he was making a lot of miracles. Even St. John Chrysostom wrote to him asking for his prayers and intercession. He was so famous. And uh, the, a great historian of the church, St. Theodore of Saris, who was a contemporary of St. Maron, he wrote the history, the religious history of his, of his era. He mentions that St. Maron had a special gift. Not only could he heal physical ailments, he was also able to heal spiritual illnesses. So he would cure one man of his jealousy, another man of his pride, etc., etc. So people would come to him for healing, spiritual healing and physical healing. And after his death, St. Theodore uh, also mentions that the, the neighboring villages fought for his relics. Mm. And then one village show that was bigger than the others and stronger finally <laughs> took hold of them. And that shrine still exists to this very day in northern Syria. Now, when uh, when he started uh, St. Marin, we're, we're speaking with Father Jacques here in the St. Gabriel Cafe. When he started attracting people to him, were the heretics that were around, were they also attracting people? So is it kind of good oh, guys, yes. bad guys type of thing? It definitely. And uh, there was, you know, at that moment, the creed was not all developed. And there was a bit of confusion and there was a problem with translation because the, the New Testament was written in Greek, but by then uh, the whole area was speaking Aramaic. They were not speaking Greek. Greek was the language of the educated by then. And so in translation, there was lots of mistakes. You know what they say in Italian, traduttore, traditori. In every translation, there's treason. <laughs> and so there was a lot of confusion whether Jesus, because Jesus was both divine and human. 
Now, they were all asking, how does that work out together? Does he have one person, two persons, one will, two wills, one nature, two natures? Now, to us, these terms are very clear. But uh, back then, maybe for some people, the word nature meant person. And so all a lot of confusion came came from that. And that was, yeah, those were the times where St. Marin was, was having this this new new way of, of dedicating himself to God and having disciples around him who were very, very staunch supporters of the Catholic, of the faith of the councils. Mm-hmm. And this is how our story continues. After his death, this uh, monastery that was formed around him called Beit Maroon, the house of Maroon. Maroon in Syriac is St. Marin. Got it. Yes. And there was, there was this hundreds of monks who lived in this monastery who were very strong defenders of the faith of the councils. And around this monastery, a community of believer, believers was formed because they wanted to live close to the monastery. They would participate in their office, divine prayers, divine liturgy, and go work in the fields around the monastery. So... It was a, a blooming community of believers, families, who just wanted to live a Christian holy life around the monastery. The monastery was the heart of the community. This was the nucleus of the Maronite church, of the Maronite people. Now, soon after, when the Council of Constantinople dictated that Christ had two natures and two wills, the Maronites, especially the monks, were, were big, big supporters of that doctrine. And so they clashed with their cousins, who were followers of Nestor. They were called Nestorians, who denied these doctrines, who said that Christ had one will, who, since he was one person, and said he, was, he had one nature where the divine and the human mixed together and became one. Okay. The Maronites, in line with the Council of Constantinople, and they had delegates in the council as well, said that the divine and the human cannot mix. You cannot mix what is divine with what is human. These are two separate natures that cannot be mixed. Yet, they were united in the person of Christ. Christ is one person, the natures, can, you cannot mix oil with water, mm-hmm. such as the divine with the human. But he is one person. And so they were persecuted by their cousins, by their brothers, these all, who also belonged to the church of Antioch and who were also Syriacs. Syriac was their language and their culture, but they just disagreed on these doctrines and in one instance, 350 Maronite monks were ambushed mm. and murdered by their Christian brothers, by the Nestorians. And so with all these persecutions, it was uh, unbearable. They had to flee. So they went down south, uh, to the, so from the northern Syrian border between Syria and Turkey, to the southern Syrian border, right around between the border between Lebanon and Syria. There, they established new monasteries, and 
just wanted to live their faith in freedom, to freely live and express their faith. Now, has Lebanon always had its own autonomy, or I mean, was it a part of Syria? No. Or, so it was always uh, autonomous. No, Lebanon is older is older than Syria because Lebanon okay. is even mentioned in the Bible more than seventy times as a as a country, as a as a land, and as a nation. Syria is more of a political, geographical determination. But Lebanon is mentioned more than 70 times in the Bible. Okay. So it's ancient. So this is this is starting to kind of piece together for me, Father, because when I had the opportunity to go celebrate the liturgy with um, the Maronite community, uh, you were telling me how the simplicity of the liturgy really came out of almost necessity because of the persecution that they were experiencing. Exactly. So now I'm starting to see the full picture. Yes, exactly. I always say this. Uh, our history is is it just the history of persecution, from one persecution to another. So Maronites were never able to build cathedrals. They were never able to build basilicas and, and big works of art and collections of books. And that's the first thing I noticed when I walked in, and because I know that you know Our Lady of Victory is kind of a, a place for the Maronite to come celebrate. And so I had asked you after Mass, is this what a typical church would look like? Because I don't know what I was expecting, but I think I was expecting more iconography and the, the great, the conostasis between the altar and the pews. And you had told me, no, it's it's actually quite simple and, and very much maybe like Our Lady of Victory looks like. Exactly, because Maronites have very few icons in our history because, well, as the story goes on, you'll hear that they lived in caves and valleys for centuries, whereas uh, uh, all this iconostasis and the development of Christian art and iconography went in, uh, happened in Constantinople because the Byzantine church, because mm-hmm. it, Constantinople was, as they called it, the new Rome. It was thriving arts, and the emperor lived in Constantinople. Uh, there was a lot of money, wealth, and uh, the church was, was I mean, the whole, the, the empire was Christian. So all of that political leverage poured into the church art, uh, architecture, and the uh, Every, everything, mm-hmm. whereas the Maronites, so they fleed from one persecution to another. So as they landed on the uh, Syrian-Lebanese border, they went further to evangelize the mountains of Lebanon because the coasts were evangelized early on by Jesus himself who visited Tyre and Sidon, and then the apostles also sailed from the coast of Lebanon. But the mountains, the rugged mountains of Lebanon, were never evangelized. They were still pagan. So these Maronite uh, disciples and missionaries would go into these mountains and evangelize the people. And the people adopted the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, and the Maronite way of worshiping God because it was also part of their culture. It was also their language, their heritage. It all intermixed together. So they had never heard the good news? No. Okay. No, because uh, who would go up those mountains? Nobody. The, disciples, the first apostles went through on the coasts, mm-hmm. evangelized the coasts, then sailed to Greece, 
and Europe to evangelize the rest of the world. And so we stayed there about 200 years until another wave of persecution hit with the Islamic invasions. So now we're talking 7th, 8th century. Islamic invasions reached Syria and even tried to invade Constantinople. So the Maronites sought refuge in a big, another big wave of immigration deep into the mountains of Lebanon. And this, is, this was a very important a turn in our history because this is where they went in and stayed, this wave of immigration. Now, when the Islamic invasions hit Syria and Antioch, and they would not allow the re-election of a bishop over Antioch. So the see of Antioch was vacant for so many years, and the Maronites, who were attached to the bishop patriarch of Antioch, found themselves secluded in their mountains with no bishop, no patriarch, let's say, and uh, with no hope of seeing a new uh, patriarch re-elected soon. So they convened together all the bishops of the Maronite Church, they prayed, they asked for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they said, we cannot stay without a head. The church needs a patriarch. So all of our bishops are here. Let us pray and elect a patriarch for us. And thus was elected St. John Marin, the first Maronite patriarch in 867. And that was the founding moment for a structured hierarchical church called the Maronite Church. So we were no longer... <clears throat> directly attached to the patriarch of Antioch. Our patriarch became the patriarch of Antioch, but just for the Maronites. Now, is this line to Rome, was that ever broken? Never. That is also something I would like to highlight. So, as the story goes on... <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated. We're, we're, we're speaking with Father Jacques Kick, the pastor of Our Lady of Victory, learning about the Maronite order. So in fact, this is something we take pride in. The Maronite church is the only Eastern church that never broke off from Rome. And uh, like I said at the beginning, we were big defenders of the councils of the church. We were very faithful to the faith of the church, to, to Peter and the see and the successor of Peter, So, which is why we suffered all those persecutions to begin with. Right, okay. So the Maronites, after they elected they, their patriarch and were surrounded by Islamic invasions, stayed secluded in their mountains for centuries and centuries. And so when the Great Schism happened in the 11th century between the East and the West, the Maronites were not concerned. <laughs> they were already in their caves. Did he even valleys. find out about it? Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not, because they were secluded in those doors. In Lebanon, so Lebanon is a small country the size of Connecticut, but it, it has uh, various uh, like geographical features. So we have the coast right on the beach, the Mediterranean, but we have steep mountains. So the very steep mountains, high mountains. 
Some people ask me, does it snow in Lebanon? We get more snow than Switzerland. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, up in the mountains. So that's where the Maronites hid in caves. You know, even. in this, so when I was at the Maronite Mass, actually, you just get the sense of something ancient. Like you're yes. you're stepping into something ancient. And so the you're painting this whole picture for us. It's just, it's been preserved in these caves since its beginning. And, and kind of you get to see that amidst the celebration of the liturgy, I think. It's called the Holy Valley in Lebanon. It still exists to this day. You can still see the caves where they lived. Wow. And all the historians that came from the, from the West would say Sunday, when the, when the monks and the people were celebrating their masses and prayers, you would see a cloud of incense covering the valley. Mm. From incense coming up from the valley. Thousands of, of monks, priests, and people who were celebrating their faith in freedom. The only thing that matters for them is to celebrate their faith, to preserve the gospel, and to live free. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing that mattered. So they stayed there and they never, never separated, were never separated from Rome. Now, when the Crusades came to the East to help the Christians who were being persecuted and to preserve the holy sites, the Maronites heard about it. And <laughs> they knew that help was coming from the West. So they, when, the, when they saw the Crusades approaching, they went down from their mountains, and apparently they were good archers. That's what the crusaders wrote about them. So they, they scrambled to their help. They helped the crusades, and the crusades were amazed. Who are these people? And are there still Christians living up these mountains? Well, that's what I was going to ask. So the crusaders were coming more to defeat the Muslims rather than to rescue the Maronites? Well, they were called to rescue by the, by the emperor of Constantinople okay. because Constantinople was being attacked several times. And if Constantinople would fall, they knew that the whole east, even the west maybe, was going to fall, which is what happened in 1492 when Constantinople fell. All the east became Islamic. And so they were, they, the Eastern churches requested help from the Pope, saying, please help us, because if, if they invade us, Christianity is destroyed, and you're in danger as well. You're next. Mm. <laughs> so when they came, the Christians of the East welcomed them and helped them. And the Crusaders were amazed, like these ancient Christians still exist. We've, they've had heard about them but they thought they were extinct. So they wrote back to the Pope saying, we found these uh, original Christians. Pope Innocent XIII wrote back to the Maronites and said, you are the rose that grew among the thorns. Hmm. And he offered them protection. And we developed cultural ties with the French crusaders that uh, our cultural ties with the French go, go on to this very day. Jacques. Yes. That's it. All right. There you go. I'm connecting the dots, Father. There you go. <laughs> yes. So we, we came out again to the public, and everybody knew back then that the Maronites maintained their connection with Rome. And so to this very day, 
you cannot find a non-Catholic Maronite. It doesn't exist. Whereas all the other Eastern churches broke off from Rome in the 11th century. So the Chaldeans, the Armenians, the Coptics, the Syriacs, uh, the Byzantines, all broke off from Rome because the emperor in Constantinople also had political leverage and influence. So when the, the patriarch of Constantinople uh, broke off from Rome, all these churches followed because, you know, he was kind of the boss. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're speaking with Father uh, Jacques Kick, the pastor of Our Lady of Victory Parish here in Columbus, and a priest in the Maronite Rite. We're going to refill our mugs and come back. Father, I'd like to talk about the Maronite Church here in the United States. Okay. Specifically here in Columbus. And also learn more about St. Charbel and why he's uh, after me. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Stalking Let's you. do that. Stay with us. O oh, good Jesus, you are the Most High God, everlasting and always living. You have shown us the way to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to guide us. We implore thy most sacred heart to have mercy on us in this time of need. Bless and protect the vulnerable. Give hope to all and fill our hearts with confidence in your divine mercy. Be our joy in the midst of suffering and our stability in the midst of uncertainty. Your forgiveness we seek, your love we need. Your protection we implore. Forgive our sins and heal our wounds. Strengthen any weakness of faith and make us strong so as to give witness to your glory. Keep far from us any illness, pestilence, or harm. You are our refuge. You are our comfort. You are our hope. Through the intercession of Our Lady, health of the sick, we come to your most sacred heart and beseech your protection and blessing. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Amen. Do you have a minute for lasting happiness? Living virtuously is the way to freedom, happiness, and holiness. To grow in virtue, we must learn about it, practice it, and persevere in it. This is what the saints have achieved with excellence. An excellent example of the virtue of gratitude is seen in St. Josephine Bakita. She lived gratitude heroically by having a thankful disposition of mind and heart, despite a tragic childhood in which she was kidnapped by slave traders. She was eventually bought by a family who introduced her to the Catholic faith. She was then freed, baptized, and became a religious sister, living with great gratitude to God. Let us ask St. Josephine Bakita to pray for us, that we too may grow in gratitude. Educate yourself in virtue. Learn more at educationinvirtue.com. Hi friends, welcome back to the St. Gabriel Cafe. I'm Amanda Miller. I'm Dave Orsborne and we're here in the cafe with Father Jacques Kick, the pastor of Our Lady of Victory Parish and a priest in the Maronite Rite. And we've been talking about the, the history of the Maronite Rite. Um, a fascinating father. I want to talk now about the Maronite Church here in the United States and, and, and specifically uh, here in Columbus. How long has there been a Maronite community in Columbus? Thank you, Dave. So uh, 
that was that started. I'm guessing it doesn't go back to the fifth century. No. <laughs> no. All right. I'm, I'm one for one. Actually, right. the main cause for that is also persecution. Again, again, and again, persecution during the Ottoman reign in the middle of the 19th century. So we're talking beginning of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. You know, the Ottomans ruled the East, the Turkish. And uh, it was an Islam. It was the Islamic uh, succession. It was the Islamic empire. We were saying the fall of Constantinople. And so they persecuted Christians. And they were brutal. The Maronites suffered that persecution. So they started fleeing. And America was the big dream. Was the was a destination for everybody who sought freedom. Mm-hmm. And like we said, Maronites, f- freedom for Maronites mattered the most. So a lot, a new wave of immigration started from Lebanon to America, primarily to the East Coast. Correct. Okay. They first landed there, but you know, as they sought work, uh, they just went further and further into U.S. and to the U.S. and then settled. Some of them settled here in Columbus so. because of the mountains here, probably. <laughs> right. So. Not quite. It was mostly because of the steel mills. Okay. Because there was work and the coal mines mm-hmm. in the area. So they settled here in the mid-1800s. This is how the community dates back. So now we have fourth and fifth generation okay. of Maronites in Columbus. But it did not grow as much because there was no big industries here. The industries were right on the steel belt, up a little bit north of Columbus. So the Cleveland, Youngstown, uh, West Virginia, mm-hmm. that line. and But they settled in Columbus. They were never able to start a church because there was not enough people for that. But they, uh, they joined whatever Roman Catholic church was available and kept their faith. Now, recently, with the new wave of immigration after the Lebanese war started in the 70s, so we're talking 1975, another wave of Maronites fled from Lebanon to the U.S. and settled in Columbus because by then Columbus There's was a boom. generations city. already yes. here, so there was community waiting for them. Exactly. Okay. And so uh, by the end of the war, the 90s, they started really settling in, in Columbus and trying to start a church. The first attempt, official attempt, was in 2000 when a priest was assigned to come help the community. He was based in Dayton because we had a community, an older community in Dayton. So he would come on Sunday just to celebrate Mass for the community and go back to Dayton Sunday evenings. And at certain times, the priest wasn't able to come from Dayton. Another priest would come from West Virginia. After celebrating all his morning masses, he would drive for four hours Mm -hmm. (laughs) to come say a Maronite mass for the community here. It was very hard because they did not have a church. They would just rent a church for Sunday mass and then go back home. It was hard to foster that community sense because there was nothing to hold on to except that liturgy, the Mass. So they stayed. They kept the faith. They, they, 
They fought the good fight, as St. Paul calls it, for more than 20 years, mm. just gathering for Mass, getting a priest, a Maronite priest, any Maronite priest to come say the liturgy every Sunday. Until last year, the Maronite bishop said, well, they deserve a chance. I'm going to assign a priest in Columbus for this community and see if we can move this mission forward. So I was in Youngstown back then, uh, last year. It was my first year in the U.S. And the bishop said, I'm going to assign you to Columbus because that community after, you know, they, they seem to be serious, these people. If they kept the, this tradition going on for more than 20 years, it looks like the, 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 the community here deserves a priest. So you came directly from Lebanon to Youngstown? Correct. I was uh, assigned in Youngstown for my first year because the Maronite bishop here requested priests from Lebanon mm. because uh, they, obviously there's a big need. Our communities are here, but we don't have enough local priests. We do have some, thank God, in our seminary in Washington, D.C., but not enough. Where, where's your bishop located? So my bishop is located in Los Angeles. And his okay. diocese spans from Los Angeles to Youngstown. Wow. <laughs> like all the U.S. <laughs> yeah. And the second diocese goes from Pennsylvania to New York. Okay. It's geographically smaller, but it has more people in it. Mm. Well, God bless your community here in Columbus that they persevered. They For 20 did. years. Yeah. 20 years without a building, without a church, yeah. without a priest even. <laughs> So now I have wow. been assigned to the community here since last September. And we've been trying, you know, they were so happy, ecstatic, that now they have a priest in Columbus that they can work with to move forward with the mission. And God has been gracious to us. You know, I have been assigned to Our Lady of Victory, and Bishop Fernandez was so generous to give us that church that, that we can use as, as, as home. For us. Now, when you were ordained in the Maronite Rite, at, at that point, were, correct my language if it's imprecise, uh, ordained in the Latin Rite as well? No. No? No. Okay. Yeah, you're, how did that come about? Well, that's that's easier than it might, than it might seem. Uh, so you're ordained a priest. I was ordained a priest in the Maronite Church. But when I came here to help uh, in Columbus, I would, my first... Uh, year was I was assigned to St. Joan of Arc. So I was granted the faculties to celebrate the Roman Catholic liturgy. Okay. And it's called you become by ritual. There is no right of ordination to That's it. That's different from by location. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you mean you don't do that, uh, they, Father? I'm not doing that yet. <laughs> not yet. I like the word yet. Sainthood yeah. is possible. Yeah. We just celebrated the feast of Padre Pio. That's right. Two yeah. days ago. Yeah. <laughs> No, so it's easy. You give, you are granted by the Pope faculties to celebrate the Roman Catholic liturgy, so you become by ritual. Mm -hmm. Do you know Father uh, Daniel Olvera? No, not yet. He's I... a parochial vicar at St. Paul's. Okay. And he is the one, I think, that first mentioned St. Charbel to me. Right. And full disclosure, I thought it was a woman. Okay, I had no idea. I had never, ever heard of Saint Charbel, but since Father Olvera, I, and he has a real strong devotion. He has 
Charbel oil, well, actually that he anointed um, us with last week during the spirit drive and, and everyone that was here. I heard he has a relic as well. Yes, he does. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I first heard about St. Charbel. And since then, he started popping up all over the place and just in really uh, uh, providential ways, you know, from people I wouldn't expect or, um, you know, something popping up on the computer about him. Wow. Um, now, you know, of course, the computer's always listening. So, <laughs> but uh, so who who is Saint Charbel? So Saint Charbel, and why is, is like, he after me? It's like our modern modern day Saint Marin. Okay. So he is now the reason for the fame of the Maronite Church all over the world because, according to the Vatican records, he is the saint that is doing the most, the biggest number of miracles around the world. Wow. Saint Charbel is a Maronite monk born in the middle of the 19th century. Okay. He died in 1989. I'm sorry, 1898. Got it. So end of the 19th century. He uh, he was he just grew up in a Maronite family in northern Lebanon and was so devoted to the virgin and to to God since his childhood. He entered this famous monastery in those valleys, the biggest monastery in that holy, sacred valley. And mm. uh, he had an uncle there who was already a monk. So he joined the religious order of the Lebanese Maronite monks and was so devoted that after 23 years of living in community, he decided that he wanted to become a hermit. Now, you, so in monastic life, you live in a community. But part of our monastic tradition as well is that you can live solo. You become a hermit, which is another level of dedication to God. It's a lot like what St. Marin lived. So a hermit eats once a day, does not see anybody, uh, prays most of his day, and works for the rest. Does not sleep much, maybe five hours of sleep. It's very harsh. It's a harsh uh, style of life. And St. Charbel was all about it. St. Charbel. Well, there I'm saying it wrong then. Charbel. Charbel. Yeah. Okay. Charbel. Not Charbel. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Charbel. Charbel. Okay. I'm one step closer. So he took the name. <laughs> his original name is Joseph, Yusuf in Arabic. Okay. But he, when he entered the monastery, he chose the name of Charbel, a second century martyr. So he lived that monastic life and the life of a hermit to the fullest. His mass would, would span for eight hours when he would kneel and pray. Every prayer he would meditate before communion and after communion and during the, the consecration, hours and hours of prayer. And uh, he was so humble. They say even in all his paintings, you never see his eyes open. They say he had all, his eyes were always pointed to the ground. And he was, there are many stories of, you know, in community where a person seems, you know, more into prayer and simple. They, you know, we, they make fun of him. So a lot of, there are a lot of stories where his brothers would just prank him for being, <laughs> you know, for being so holy, let's say. So at uh, one instance, they were planting uh, onions and his, his brother said, oh, you're planting it wrong. You're planting it the other way. 
So they made fun of him and told him, plant it the other way around. Mm -hmm. He said, okay, if that's what you want. He planted it upside down and it bloomed. It, it grew. And in one instance, they were allowed only a certain amount of oil for their lamps during the night. And so instead of giving him oil for his night, they gave him water. But an hour later, they were walking around the monastery and they saw that his room was lit. They went and told their superior and just asked for penance. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you don't prank a saint. <laughs> no. God really just don't, that's good advice, Father. That's really good. Never prank a saint. Yes. So, Father Jacques, we're, we're talking about St. Charbel. Um, so, and Charbel. Charbel. Thank you. Yeah. Charbel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you say he is responsible for the most miracles in, in like Catholic history? Uh, no, that... today. 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 Okay. In, in, in today's <laughs> statistics, he's the one who's doing the most miracles around the world. Okay. But his, his, fame, his fame started right after his death. People started seeing light around his tomb. So they flocked because they knew he was a holy man. He lived a holy life. He actually died during Mass while he was saying Mass at the moment of the elevation, mm. a very sacred mm. moment during Mass. That yeah. was when he had a stroke. And so he lived a holy life, died a holy death. Light started coming around his tomb, and then miracles started happening with Christians and non-Christians. Even Muslims would go and, you know, he would appear they say, we saw a monk out in the garden who said, your son will live. Then my son, who was dead, came back to life. Wow. Then the priests in the monastery would tell them, we don't have any monk with that description, and that's outside. He, would, uh, st he started even doing uh, surgeries, medical surgeries. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would appear to people who had cancer or who had, uh, um, you know, Big, big medical problems, and he would operate. Real surgeries, you see the scar. I mean, these are people who are living and walking among us. And you see, there's a famous case that was one of the miracles that the Vatican used for his canonization of, of with Mrs. Nohad Eshami. He operated on her neck. She had a very severe spinal uh, injury, and he operated. You can still see the wound in her neck, and it bleeds Every on every uh, anniversary, every annual anniversary of the miracle, the wound is open and it bleeds. And she's still alive today and she goes and prays uh, at St. Charbel. We have processions every month over there and it's still open. And in Mary, many of these miracles, they found stitches that no longer exist, stitches that were used a hundred years ago that he uses. Because, and there's, you know, it's, it's it's not modern day uh, aesthetical surgery. Yeah. So you see, there's there's a scar, and you know it's it's like old fashioned surgeries. Well, yeah. when he was living, was he ever known for his medical? No. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. So we call him the doctor of heaven, the heavenly doctor, mm. and he's been doing so many miracles. His body was incorrupt for 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 decades even up, up the last time it was opened maybe 50 years ago it was still oozing a blood and water and mm. oil they had to open his tomb several times to change because it was the steel was getting corrupt and the wood was getting corroded everything was being destroyed because constant flow of water blood and oil 
Are they collecting the oil then? Is that where the oil yes, they did. comes from? Okay. Yeah, they did. Now his tomb is closed. You cannot open it unless there's a permission from the Vatican for that. But uh, back in the day, yes, they would collect oil, water, and blood. from. And you can still, still see, if you visit his monastery in Lebanon, you can still see the vestments they would, they would vest him with every time they changed because they had to change mm-hmm. the vestments and the coffin. You can still see them. They were soaked in blood and water. It was Say Charbel is a modern-day phenomenon of somebody who lived a life totally dedicated to God, so completely dedicated. Is and there a U.S. shrine to St. Charbel? We have, uh, <clears throat> so there are many churches named after St. Charbel in the U.S., and uh, I think we have a, an order in Massachusetts of, they're all American, but Maronite okay. monks, and I think it's called the Order of St. Charbel. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, going to have to get on the internet then and find this. Yes, so he that. has... I really want to learn more about him. Oh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, there's a place in D.C. or just outside of it. I'm I'm not sure, but there's a. Yeah, we'll we'll have to look that up and get back to everybody. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, Father, we're speaking with uh, Father Jacques Kick, the uh, pastor of Our Lady of Victory, and we're talking about the Maronite right. You mentioned uh, American-born Maronites. Is is your community exclusively Lebanese? I'm trying to get to kind of the um, the cultural dynamic. Would would a would an American get it? Yeah, absolutely. No, we're not exclusively Lebanese at all. Because you know that that's uh, that's not what it's about. Now. It, it, it's true that uh, the Maronites were based in Lebanon for all those centuries, and most of the Maronites come from Lebanon, but uh, there are Maronites all over the world, and people who are from Maronite descendants who are now in modern-day uh, France and uh, Italy and the U.S. and England, everywhere, people who are born here who had Maronite roots or who just joined the Maronite Church because they loved the liturgy. Mm-hmm. They were they were drawn to that spirituality that is carried in the Maronite liturgy. Who just joined, and there are many Maronites still in Syria, which was the cradle of the Maronite community, and uh, in Egypt, in Cyprus, where many Mar- many Maronites immigrated due to persecutions. We're all over the world, and it's it's not ethnic. It is true. That when you say Maronite, it you immediately associate it with Lebanon because Lebanon was, you know, the host country for more than a thousand years. Mm-hmm. It's true, but it's not exclusive at all. Good, that's good to know. We have just about five minutes left, Father. The Maronite liturgy is celebrated at Our Lady of Victory on Sundays at eleven thirty a.m. Correct. It's not yes. p.m. No, but, uh, of course it isn't, Dave. 11.30 a.m. on Sundays. For our friends that are listening and are interested in attending, what, what should they know walking into the Maronite liturgy? Everybody is welcome to join and pray with us. Uh, it's uh, bilingual or even trilingual. Uh, parts of the Mass are in Arabic, parts are in English, and parts are in Syriac, such as the words of the consecration. They are the very same words that Jesus spoke because Jesus spoke Aramaic and Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic. So 
when we say the words of the consecration, they're in Syriac, but we have a, uh, a books mm-hmm. where people can follow, and we do also a presentation where people can also follow. When we use other languages, they have the translation. So what they should be, what, how should they prepare? They should have an open heart mm-hmm. and come listen to the prayers, the beautiful, simple prayers of the Maronite liturgy. It was very easy to follow along because it was, like you said, the uh, projected on the wall. And so you could just yeah. follow along in the prayers. And a lot of it was in English. Correct. Mm-hmm. And how, how should we approach for communion? Is, is there a difference? Uh... Yes, thank you for asking. Communion is only given on the tongue and it is by intinction. So under both species, we intinct the sacred host. We dip it in the chalice. So similar to Byzantine. Yes. Okay. Only on the tongue. Okay. And something I was very, I was struck by was the sign of peace. Yes. Yeah. That's different. The sign of peace. Yes, people should be prepared for that. We give, so the sign of peace is given before communion at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, because Jesus says, before you offer your sacrifice, go and make peace with your brother. So the priest starts by saying, peace to you, O altar of God, peace to the holy mysteries placed upon you. He touches the altar and the, the offerings and then passes the peace to the altar servers by hand and they go out and pass it by hand to the faithful at the beginning of each pew and people pass it on to each other by having a sign by joining their hands together and passing it touching taking it from from one person to another so it emanates from the altar you you slide your hands on the other person's right, right? yeah oh, so that's beautiful. It, it was this beautiful almost wave coming from the altar of Emanation is a good word, Father, just passing it to the, amongst the people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Peace emanates from the altar and is passed from one person to another. That's beautiful. Yes. So, Father uh, Jacques, thanks for being, we'd love to have you back at, oh, a, sure. a, and, get, and just to get to know you better. Uh, the you. Divine Liturgy, Sundays at 1130 a.m. at Our Lady of Victory. For more information, on the Maronite liturgy, what's the best way, Father? For, I guess, just use Google just, or just come to or mass. Just go. Come, come just to the come, liturgy. Come to mass. And Father, most times, do you have like um, coffee Donuts? afterwards? Oh yes, absolutely. So then I'm sure we could ask That's, you questions. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Lebanese, Lebanese coffee, inevitable. Lebanese yes. coffee and desserts. <laughs> we'll have to do a show on the road, Dave. That's oh, it. We'll do well, a room. You're welcome. <laughs> could you leave us with your blessing? Yes, I would like to uh, end our conversation with a with a prayer from mm-hmm. our liturgy. It's from the Mass book on the Passion Week. The beloved only Son, God, only Son of God of the Father, firstborn Son of Mary's womb, has come to save us. There is no love greater than the love of Him who died, having shed His blood. He was crucified for us. Our mouths now praise Him. Praise him. The Redeemer of the world has brought us new life. Christ our Savior, you were slain as it was written. You became as one large wound, soaked in your own blood. Oh, tell me, Lord, are their hearts so cruel to do such things that you bleed this way? My own people did this, our Lord responded. Yet my pierced heart heals the wounds of those who draw near. Amen. Thank you, Father.